Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is a Design for Living Big Book meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. My name is Joanne and I am a compulsive eater and your chairperson today. To open the meeting, let us have a moment of quiet meditation followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. We start this meeting by remembering our common purpose, to extend the heart and hand of the OA Fellowship to those who still suffer. Let us be mindful of OA's unity with diversity policy, which respects our differences, yet unites us in the solution to our common problem. Whatever problem you may have with food, you are welcome at this meeting. Today, we are delighted to have Janet visiting us to share her experience, strength and hope, focusing on step five out of the big book. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Welcome, Janet. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, greetings from America, from New Jersey. And I'm here to talk about step five, but I figured first I'll tell you a little bit about me and do a very quick run through of steps one through four so that we don't just talk about step five in a vacuum. Um, so as I said, I'm Janet, I'm from New Jersey and I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And my hope always when I talk is to convince anyone who's listening that the age of miracles is still with us, that there is a God and that he is still alive and well and launching search and rescue parties for us addicts. Um, so a few words about me. I first came into OA when I was in high school. I was already a full-blown compulsive eater. I stole food. I stole money for food. And at my worst, I was binging and making myself throw up six times a day. Um, I had to have my esophagus surgically retightened because of the abuse I heaped on it. And if I was going to show a picture of what I was like before, I would have to find a picture of a zombie because I could be in a room with all of you and feel like I was the only person on the planet. I was a compulsive liar. I made up crazy stories, including cutting myself with a razor, pretending I was mugged or raped, going to the hospital for a fake rape exam, and even taking the penicillin that the very nice nurse gave me so that I wouldn't get syphilis from my fake rapist. Um, I was not well mentally, I was not stable, um, and I continued binging and purging even through my first seven years in OA until I was introduced to the 12 steps and to the God who, as I said, I believe, launches search and rescue programs for us addicts. And once I gave my life to God and committed to work these 12 steps, um, it was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. 
And by the grace of God, I've been in recovery now over 37 years, and I'm excited to talk to you about step five and its role in helping us find God. Um, but I just want to say a little bit about the earlier steps so we can kind of put it in context. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about briefly is powerlessness because this tripped me up for so long. And obviously if we don't have a good foundation, one, two, three, and four, it's a waste of time doing five. So let's talk about powerlessness for a minute. Um, on page 24 of the big book, it says that we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force, the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Well, I've read that, but it's like, what the heck does that mean? So let's break that down because I think it's pretty important. At least it was for me. Um, normally, my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory. So let's say I'm about to touch a hot stove. Well, in my memory are stored all these data points telling me that touching a hot stove is dangerous. So if I'm about to touch a hot stove, my memory will send a little thought across the bridge that connects to my conscious mind and says, stop, danger, hot stoves will burn you. And then I don't touch the stove. Or another example, personal to me, I have a terrible cat allergy. So stored in my memory are a bunch of data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if I'm tempted to go into a pet store or visit a friend who has a cat, my memory grabs the data points, generates a little thought to run across the bridge to connect to my conscious mind and says, stop, danger, cats will give you an asthma attack. So again, my memory keeps me from danger. Make sense? Let's go to food. Okay, so I used to binge on these certain types of cookies while I was in college. I would always say, I'm just going to have one or two, but I end up eating the whole box of 20 and sometimes more. So in my memory were all these data points of how I would promise myself I'd just eat one cookie, but I'd end up eating the whole box. So there I go again, about to buy a box of cookies, telling myself I'll just have one. And my memory does its job. It grabs all the data points, ready to send a little thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind, ready to say, stop, danger. You won't be able to stop at one. You'll eat the whole box and then you'll hate yourself. You'll get fatter. You'll make yourself throw up. Don't do it. And it goes to run across, except when it came to food, the bridge was broken and the thought couldn't get across. My memory failed to hold me in check, and I had no defense against the first compulsive bite. I couldn't keep the memory green. I couldn't just tell myself to stay away from certain foods. When it came to food, the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind, my will, was broken. And once broken, it could never, ever be repaired. I was hopeless. Just like Bill Wilson, when he realized he was hopeless and said on page eight, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. For me, food was my master because I had a broken bridge. 
okay, so our bridges are broken. There's no connection between our memory and our conscious mind when it comes to food. And once that bridge is broken, it can't be fixed ever. Self-knowledge won't fix it. Desire won't fix it. We are 100% hopeless without a miracle. Um, Luckily, this program basically gives me a formula for a miracle. Um, So how to have that miracle. Well, on page 45, it tells me again that lack of power is my problem. And then it tells me exactly what my solution is. And it doesn't say my solution is meeting or food plans or fellowship or phone calls. Those are all wonderful and helpful, but it's not the solution. The solution put forth in the big book is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. Those are really powerful words for me. The solution is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. Um, So if we play detective, we see the big book is giving us clues about God. And that's how we start working on step two. We start finding a power greater than ourselves, which will solve our problems. Well, that tells me a few things about this power, this God. If he's going to solve my problems, he must be pretty smart because I sure couldn't solve them. This power must also be strong because this illness kicked my butt. So this power has to be stronger than me and stronger than the illness. And finally, this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would he bother trying to solve my problem? So smart, strong, and cares about me. That's a power. That's a God who I can have a relationship with. And it starts with willingness. For me, it started with being willing to go to any length, seeing that I was licked, and then a prayer. I believed that God could maybe restore me to sanity, but maybe is okay. So my prayer went something like this. Um, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. And that was really my step three. Um, I surrendered my life to God. On a practical sense, what does a step three mean? It means I'm out of the outcome business, that I no longer do things to get a result. I do them because I'm obedient to God. So, for instance, um, I might have a goal that my kids who are now 19 go to church while they're in college. I can't have that as a a numero uno goal as my main goal, because that's outcome oriented. So I do what I think God would have me in that area. I take them to church when they're little. I try to model good behavior, but whether or not they go to church in college is none of my business. And that is how I stay sane and living my third step. Very few things are any of my business. And then I did my fourth step. So I looked at my character defects. I looked at my resentments. And especially I looked at where I was wrong, right? I had to get rid of the resentments. The big book tells me that if I harbor resentments, I'm cut off from the sunlight of the spirit. 
well, my only hope of recovering, of staying in recovery is being protected by God. So if I'm cut off from that, I'm in trouble. It's like I'm um, cut off from my oxygen supply, my spiritual oxygen, can't do it. So I look to resolve my resentments. Um, and a lot of my resentments, um, a couple of things I avoided doing, I avoided just saying, well, this person's spiritually sick, so I just need to pray for them. Because I found when I did that, that just set me up on a prideful hilltop. If I have a resentment, there's always something wrong with me. And a lot of times it's because I think people should run their lives in such a way that make me happy. Um, with my kids, it was often, I think my kids should make life choices that will make me happy. And that's selfish and controlling. Um, or I think I should only have to do things I want to do, which is self-centered. And then I looked at my fears and I love how the big book talks about fears. It says fear is an evil and corroding thread. So I had to resolve my fears um, by looking to see why I had them. And always when I drilled down, it was because I don't wanna be sad or uncomfortable. But this program tells me I have to learn to live with discomfort. Um, so for instance, if I had fear of my kids not going to, col going to college, um, if they don't go to college, then they won't get a good job. If they don't get a good job, then they'll have a horrible life. If they have a horrible life, I'll be sad. And I say, what would God have me do? And say, yeah, God would have me keep out. Um, by the way, my kids are going to college. Um, don't know if they'll be going to church, but none of my business. My role there is to model correct behavior and to pray. And I'm out of the outcome business. So I have my fourth step done. And now we, we're gonna turn to step five. So if you guys have your big book, um, I'm going to talk out of the big book and the AA 12 and 12. So I'm going to start with the big book on page 72. And I am going to start. Um, actually, can I ask someone to read the first paragraph for me? Is that okay? So is there someone who has their book and would like to read the first paragraph that starts having made? Sasha? Thanks, Janet. Um, into action. Having made our personal inventory, what shall we do about it? We have been trying to get a new attitude, a new relationship with our creator, and to discover the obstacles in our path. We have admitted certain defects. We have ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. We have put our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. Now these are about to be cast out. This requires action on our part which when completed will mean that we have admitted to God, to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our defects. This brings us to the fifth step in the program of recovery mentioned in the preceding chapter. So this is such a cool paragraph. So first it's telling me why I'm doing my fifth step. Why do I have to do this? And it gives me three reasons. I'm trying to get a new attitude. I'm trying to change and not be such a self-centered person anymore. But look at the second reason. I'm trying to get a new relationship with my creator. 
See, this program isn't just about believing in God. It's about having a relationship with him. And this step is going to help me in that. And then to discover the obstacles in my path. What are the character defects that are blocking me from my new and awesome relationship with my creator? And it says, okay, I've already started to see my defects, what my troubles are. Now they're about to be cast out. Look at that wording there. They're about to be cast out. I don't do the casting out. God does that. That's how it works. I look at it. I admit it. And then he removes it. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Like, we, you know, we read these words and these steps so often that I don't often st stop to think about it. But look at that. It's um, God comes into my heart and casts out my character defects. And in the next chapter, um, I'm sorry, the next paragraph, they tell us if we skip this step, we may not overcome drinking. It is really important. If we skip this, we're not going to overcome binging. And the top of page 73, it talks about that, okay, people who avoid this turn to easier methods. Almost invariably, they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. So a couple things here. Um, by not disclosing everything, that's a form of dishonesty. It's dishonesty by omission. I mean, if I go and I take $50 out of your wallet and I don't tell you, um, well, I haven't lied to you, but it's dishonest by omission. And kind of a cool sentence here. It says, they wondered why they fell. I want to say a person should always know why they fall or why they got into relapse. This is one reason, not doing a thorough fifth step. I've actually identified um, 16 others and I, want, I put together um, a talk on pitfalls that lead to relapse. So if just anyone's curious, it's on, it's, um, you can find it on the Vision For You website. Um, but anyway, they're talking here, they, you'll fall and then you'll wonder why. And this is why, because you never completed this. And it says what this step gives us is humility, fearlessness, and honesty. Then they continue um, and they say, more than most people, we lead double lives. We're like actors. To the, out of, to the outer world, we present our stage characters. We want to enjoy a certain reputation, but we know in our heart we don't deserve it. So we've got this guilt. And guilt is only helpful if it um, encourages us to admit our character defects, right? If I take 50 bucks from your wallet and I feel guilty, well, I should feel guilty. And guilt is doing its job, but only if my solution is to go to you to confess, to say, I'm sorry, and to give you your $50 back. Um, but we have this vague sense of guilt because it says, the inconsistency is made worse by the things he does on his sprees. Coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. We can't be vague. We can't have these boogeymen in the closet. Like, 
Yeah, I think I did some kind of sort of not so good things in my past. We can't go to God with that. I need to go to God and say, you know, I faked a mugging and went to the hospital. You know, I lied here. I cheated here. I stole here. I was a nasty person here. I need to be specific, not just, yeah, I just like wasn't the best person. Um, why? And it says, because if we, um, if we just keep acting like this, we push it down. And then we are under constant fear and tension. And that makes for more drinking or for us more compulsive eating. Fear and tension, mental and emotional strain. And then it goes ahead and it talks about um, psychologists and why it generally doesn't work for us. It's generally because we're not honest with them and they keep hammering home honesty. At the bottom of page 73, we must be entirely honest with somebody if we expect to live long or happily in this world. So I wanna say a few things about um, honesty. Basically, if we're not honest, we are not going to recover. If we're not honest, it's as if we took a big black magic marker and wrote a big keep out God sign and put it over our hearts. God won't come in when we're dishonest. So um, ways we're often dishonest is with our sponsors, right? Um, often about food. We lie by omission when we don't tell them things or even not in the area of food. We know the things we're supposed to tell our sponsors. Um, if we're dishonest, it's not going to work. And think about it. If I'm dishonest with my sponsor, I've really made an idol, a false God out of my sponsor, thinking that my relationship with that sponsor is what's going to get me recovered. But a sponsor's job is to help me get a relationship with God. I'm better off honest with no sponsor than dishonest with a sponsor. And if I'm dishonest with my sponsor, I'm really stealing from her. I'm stealing her time. She can go out and be working with someone who's willing to do the work. So we are people who have to be honest. Whether or not normal earth people need to be, none of my business. But I know for people like us, it means no lies, no lies by omission, no cheating on husbands, no cheating on taxes. We are people who have to live in a way that's rigorously honest. I'm gonna just flip to um, the AA 12 and 12 for a bit um, on, on page 60, where it discusses step five. It says, um, until we actually sit down and talk aloud about what we have so long hidden, our willingness to clean house is largely theoretical. When we are honest with another person, it confirms that we've been honest with ourselves and with God. So now they're going on and they're talking about honesty, but they're talking about more than that. They're talking about personal honesty isn't enough. We have to be honest with another person. They continue on that page and they say, going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous. Sure, it's a lot easier for me to just say, 
yeah, God, you know, I, I faked a mugging. Then to go back, you know, and contact the per- all the people I involved in my lie and tell them, you know what, I faked a mugging um, um, in my amends. But even telling a sponsor is harder than just telling God because there's fear there, right? What if the sponsor doesn't like me anymore? What if the sponsor judges me? So as a sponsor, um, first I tell people that anything you tell me goes with me to the grave and I am not a judge. Um, I mean, I think my sponsees know some of the um, crazy things that I've done. So who am I to judge anyone? So as sponsors, we never judge anyone. We can't. Um, So back to the 12 and 12, it says, I'm still on page 60. It is worth noting that people of very high spiritual development almost always insist on checking with friends or spiritual advisors the guidance they feel they have received from God. Surely then a novice ought not lay himself open to the chance of making foolish, perhaps tragic blunders in this fashion. Um, While the comment or advice of others may be by no means infallible, it is likely to be far more specific than any direct guidance we may receive while we're still so inexperienced in establishing contact with the power greater than ourselves. See those words again? Establishing contact with the power greater than ourselves. That's mind-boggling. Like the, the power that flung the stars in the sky wants to have a relationship with me. And here I am on my way to that, on step five out of 12 to doing that. Then it goes on to say in the 12 and 12, our next problem is to discover the right person in whom we are to confide. So the big book talks a little bit about this. um, And so does the 12 and 12. Generally, they say it's someone who's gone before um, and done this work. Almost always, it's our sponsors. Um, But there's some caveats that the big book makes. It says it could be your family, but we cannot disclose anything to our wives or parents, which will hurt them or make them unhappy. I'm on page 74. Um, And tells us we have no right to save our own skin at another person's expense. And I think that's a rule both for fifth step and for life. I have no right to save my own skin at another person's expense. I have to put the welfare of others ahead of my own. So basically, if on my resentment list is a resentment against my sponsor, um, I may want to tell it to somebody else. Um, If I'm telling the inventory to someone else and they're on the list, I may want to tell it to someone else. It says we tell it to someone who will understand yet be affected. And then it gives us a rule. And again, not just for step five, but for life. The rule is we must be hard on ourselves, but always considerate of others. And the next paragraph just gives a little big book trivia. If you're ever in a big book trivia contest and they ask, what is the only step you're allowed to postpone? The answer is step five. All the other steps, we have to keep going quickly, quickly, quickly. 
Step five is the only step we're allowed to postpone and only if there isn't a suitable person around. But as soon as there is, we need to be ready um, to do it. Now, I know a lot of people um, are on, in America, they call them trains, where they'll go over resentments or fears or someone, they'll just post it. Um, I have a resentment, I have a fear, and, and just wait until someone says, I can hear it, um, or they're matched up with someone for a week or so. This is, again, just my opinion, my opinion here. I personally would not do that because the book tells me, um, you know, that I get to choose and I'm supposed to make sure it's a suitable person. And when I've done that before, I've gotten feedback that I just thought, yeah, no, that feedback is not correct. It's, and sometimes feedback is off the wall. So we wanna make sure that we go to someone where we trust their recovery. We're entitled to do that. You know, so we, um, we don't just post. And then we go to it. Then um, we do the process. Let's see. It says, we do this, we hold nothing back. I had a sponsor who, when I finished my whole inventory said, okay, now tell me your deepest, darkest secret. We hold nothing back. And then, um, and it says, we pocket our pride page 75. And boy, do we pocket our pride talking about all the stuff we've done wrong. And then the promises. And these are some of the most beautiful promises. But just like I didn't really want to talk about the steps, step five in a vacuum. I don't really want to talk about the fifth step promises in a vacuum, because there's so many other beautiful ones that come before. And it's really cool to see how they all fit together. Um, the first time we really see promises is actually step two. There's no step one promise. We admit we're powerless and our lives are unmanageable. Okay, that's like me going to the doctor and saying, okay, I have diabetes, I admit it. Um, that gets me nothing. But, but the big book tells me my problem is power, right? So that's what I need to get better, power. I think these steps are, we're on a continuum to more and more power. And on page 46, it talks about us getting um, our first infusion of power, and that's step two. So it says, as soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began, just beginning, to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. So once I say, okay, maybe there is a God and maybe this God can help me, I start getting power and it's enough and direction, like what to do. It's just enough power and direction to get me to step three. And then step three, top of page 63, gives me more promises. It says, um, we had a new employer with a capital E. So they're talking about God. Being all powerful, he provided what we needed if, this is a conditional promise, if we kept close to him and performed his work well. And then it says, established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves. 
So that spiritual experience is already starting. A spiritual experience is when God rewires my heart to make me more like him. So instead of being selfish and self-centered like Janet is, I become more caring about other people, more loving, more tolerant, like my creator is. We become less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we become interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. Now listen to this, as we felt new power flow in. So we get more power, got a little bit step two, get a little bit more step three. New power flow in. We enjoy peace of mind. We discover we can face life successfully and we become conscious of his presence. Like, oh yeah, I think there is a God. He's really around. Like he didn't just create the universe and like sit back and watch reruns for the rest of eternity. And it says, we began to lose our fear, begin to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter we're reborn. Then the fourth step promises, it says, um, we're at the bottom of 70. It says, we've begun to, we've analyzed our resentments. We've comprehended their futility and fatality. We've begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. And then it says, um, you've swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. So again, my pride's starting to take a hit. And now, these are my favorite of all the promises, the step five promises says page 75, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye, right? I don't have to cross the street if I see people who I've hurt. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. They just like fall. Imagine that visual. I'm not an artist, but if I was like, that would just be crazy. It's almost like, I don't know, you're, um, you're outside and you play or you come from the beach and you've got sand on your bathing suit and you just brush it off. The sand falls from you. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. So not just an awareness, but knowing he's near us. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs. Yeah, I, I was never an atheist or agnostic. I always believed in God. It did me no good. Belief does nothing, right? If I... um. If I had diabetes and I believed in insulin, but I didn't inject it into my arm, it would do me no good. So we had beliefs before, okay, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. God's rewiring our hearts. The feeling that the drink problem or for us, the food problem has disappeared will often come strongly, often. So I take that as more than 50% of the time. We're not obsessing about food. We feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Beautiful images there, beautiful promises. And then um, the 12 and 12 had a few more that I thought um, were really cool. Okay, on page 58 of the AA 12 and 12, it says, we get the feeling we can be forgiven no matter what we have thought or done. Because when I'm sitting there telling my sponsor all these horrible things I've never told anyone, 
and she's still looking at me the same way, I start feeling maybe I can be forgiven. It also tells us we first, um, often it was while working on this step with our sponsors or spiritual advisors that we first felt truly able to forgive others. So we can know, we start knowing we can receive forgiveness and give forgiveness. Another thing on page 58, it says, we start getting more humility. So getting more humility. We don't need to be in charge of the world. We can let God be in charge. And then on page 59, it says, only by discussing ourselves, holding nothing back, only by being willing to take advice and accept direction could we set foot on the road to straight thinking, straight thinking. Now, in the big book, in chapter five, it says, once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So by me doing this spiritual work, my thinking starts to straighten out. Then um, it ends in the AA 12 and 12 on page 62 by saying this feeling of being at one with God and man, this emerging from isolation through the open and honest sharing of our terrible burden of guilt brings us to a resting place, resting place where we may prepare ourselves for the following steps toward a full and meaningful sobriety. Look at that word toward. We're no longer running from food. We're running toward a stronger relationship with God. I'm not running away from, I'm running toward. Um, when I told my story at the beginning, I told the prayer that I said, you know, I believed in God, but I just say, okay, God, maybe my views of you are all wrong. Maybe there's someone here today who isn't even sure that there is a God. And I always say, if that's the case, because I never want anyone to leave feeling hopeless, um, you can start with the maybe prayer. And it might go something like this. God, I don't know if you're there. And if you're there, I don't know if you care about me. But if you are there and you do care, I need help. And I'm willing to do what you want. The worst thing that could happen is that you're talking to dead air. But what if there really is a God who's listening and who goes into action as a result of that prayer? What if that's really the case? Well, I'm here to tell you that that really is the case, that there really is a God who's alive and well and willing to help us. As I said, my personal belief is that he created the world in six days, took a day off to rest, and then is spending the rest of eternity launching search and rescue missions for us addicts. And he wants us to recover and then to be part of search and rescue missions for our fellows who are still suffering. Um, as it says on page 153 of our book, the age of miracles is still with us. And that is my firm belief that the age of miracles really and truly is still with us. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Janet. Thank you. Um, thank you for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us today. We are now transitioning into question and answer. So if you have questions for Janet, 
please send those questions to our moderator, who is Michael. He is waiting eagerly for your step five questions. Um, Michael, I'm now introducing you. Please go ahead. Thank you, Joe. Hello, everybody. My name is Michael, and I'm a compulsive eater and your moderator for today. And please continue to send your questions on step five to me using the chat function. I'm listed there as moderator Michael, and we'll try to get through as many as we can today. And our first question is this for you, Janet. Um, can you talk a little bit about other pitfalls to recovery um, that you know we may not have discussed already? Okay, so the first thing is, um... Sometimes what people call relapse is just ongoing non-recovery. So I just wanna say that. Um, so one, not moving ahead quickly in the steps. Two, lack of humility. Three, dishonesty. Four, not enough work and self-sacrifice for others. Five, not working hard enough on our fourth steps. Six, not resolving resentments. Seven, not seeking to play the role that God assigns. Eight, not living up to my sex ideal or harming others. Nine, not disclosing everything in my fifth step. 10, not paying money we owe. 11, letting up on our spiritual program of action and resting on our laurels. 12, not working intensively with other compulsive eaters. 13, not immediately repairing damage we cause when we're inconsiderate or unhelpful. 14, imposing on people and lack of gratitude. 15, not knowing my own personal temptations and limits. 16, having to be right about everything. And 17, um, idolatry. And that's really, if I say, I won't be happy unless, anything that is my unless is something I've put ahead of God. Thank you so much. So we're getting a lot of great questions. Thanks everybody for that. And the next one to you, Janet, is uh, one of our fellows um, loved what you said about if I have a resentment, then that means there's something wrong with me. And they're asking, um, do you have a process for digging out you know, what that problem is and how to find it and how to identify it? I do, I actually wrote it up. I can um, email it to Joanne and then she can give it out to whoever wants it. That would be awesome. Okay. Thank you. Uh, next up, um, can you speak on doing your step five over again in your journey in recovery? I mean, was it different for you the second time or even the third time, how many times you've done it? And what does that look like? I've done a few with different sponsors. So I've done different formats. And so I guess that's, that's the long and short of the answer. And what I did is I just took, there was one sponsor I had and I liked her format the best, um, how she did resentments. And then I heard how someone else did fears and I liked how he did it the best. And so I just, for myself, when I work with sponsors, I just kind of took the best of everyone I've worked with and put, put it all together. 
it gets easier to see my part. The, the guide that I used, um, the one that I like, instead of just asking for every single resentment for me to find, where is I selfish? Where is I dishonest? Where is I self-seeking? Where is I frightened? My sponsor had me just hone in on what was my part. And so I've learned to do it that way. And I found that a lot more helpful. So for example, um, I had an elderly relative who wanted to spend a, a lot of time with me more than I did with that person. And I had a resentment. Now I would see that person with a smile on my face. I was kind, I was loving, but I had a resentment. So there was something wrong with me. So the, the way I filled it out, I resent, you know, I put the person's name because wants to spend too much time with me. It affects my ambition, right? To have time to myself, my part. I think I should only have to do things I want to do. Oh, dagger in my heart. And then from there, I see my defect, selfish, self-centered. And then I move on to the next resentment. There's no dishonesty there, right? Because I'm honest with myself that I didn't want to spend time with that person. To be honest with that person and say, I don't want to spend time with you would have been mean. Um, so it was just, so that was the most helpful to me to get laser focused on my part. Thank you. Uh, our next question, um, a fellow asks, what if a sponsee will not share a fifth step with them? Um, how do I continue with the steps without having heard their fifth step? Well, that's a great question. Um, I guess for me, it would, well, okay. It would depend on why. If they said, I don't trust you, then uh, maybe I'm not the right sponsor for them. But some people may feel, um, I mean, I've done inventories with therapists. And the book tells us we're allowed. We can do it with a therapist. We could do it with a priest. Um, so if the person said, because I, you know, my therapist could guide me, I feel because part of my religion, I need to go to a priest. I would say, okay. And then I could still guide them because then when it came to their amends, they would go over their amends list with me. So I don't think it would stop me from being able to guide them. One of our fellows sort of following that up with a question that says, how do I help a sponsee who struggles with the concept of God as a higher power? I could talk about this for hours. So there's a couple things. So I go through the book and um, there's a few things, a couple of really pivotal things. So remember how I talked about um, the paragraph that shows us that God is smart God is strong and God cares about us. I would have them write on that paragraph. Do you believe that? That God is smart, smart enough, that God is strong enough, and that God cares about you enough and really dig into it. And then um, a, one of the most, I mean, I think just a cool part of the book, let me just find it. Um, page 55, it says, Deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may, and I would read this with the sponsee. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, 
but in some form or, or other, it is there. And I would tell the sponsee what that says deep down in everyone is the fundamental idea of God. So that means when God created us, and if the person has trouble calling him God, it's okay. They can call him higher power. Um, but God gave me like two eyes, two ears, a nose, a mouth, and the fundamental idea of himself, that he loved me so much, he placed that inside me, but it's obscured like a cataract. And it tells me three things that obscure it. And I would help my sponsees identify theirs. Calamity. So that's if someone said, and this was Bill Wilson's problem, right? He said, you know, the war that happened, all this stuff going on. If there is a devil, he seems to be the boss. Um, so is there calamity? And Ebby just said to him, you know what, Bill? I don't know about that. All I know is when I gave my life to God, I stopped drinking. So I would see, is calamity one of the spiritual cataracts she has or he has? By pomp. Well, that's me wanting everything to go my way. And often once we take a first step, you know, we realize we can't be on the throne and worship of other things. Again, how do we find the worship of other things? We fill in the blank. I won't be happy unless. And some common things are, I get a boyfriend, I get a husband, I get a baby. My kids go to college. My kids go to the right college. My kid, you know, my grandchildren does this. My husband does this. I won't be happy unless one that I've had to fight a lot is unless my kids aren't mad at me. Well, yeah, you can imagine how much fun I had when they were teenagers. Um, so we have to see what our idols are. So I would recommend going through that paragraph, those two things. So they can see what their prejudices are against God, what their spiritual cataracts are, and then what they believe. And then when it gets to um, how it works, I would go through the ABCs with them on page 60. Do you believe that you're a compulsive eater and cannot manage your own life? Everyone's going to say yes. Do you believe that probably no human power could have relieved our compulsive eating? Generally, everyone says yes. Do you believe that God could and would if he were sought? So then we can break it down for our sponsees. Do you believe that God could restore people in general to sanity? Not you necessarily, but people in general. And if they've been around, they've seen enough people recover. So they would say, well, yeah, he's God. He could do anything. So he could restore people in general. And then do you believe he could restore you if he wanted to? He may not want to, but if he wanted to, could he? And of course, once a person says he could restore other people, then yes, it's we, we can't with any integrity say he couldn't for me. He has no ability. But then, okay, will he if you seek him? And this is where a lot of people get tripped up. And they say, well, he could, but he won't for me. And then we figure out why. Sometimes people say, I've done this really bad thing in the past. So, you know, God won't do it for me. 
And that's when we remind them. That's why we have a ninth step because we've all done rotten things in the past where we say, well, if I had cancer, it wouldn't be my fault. But this is, you know, and I caused this illness um, because of my own selfishness and self-centeredness. Well, you know, if I'm out in the ocean and I'm on a boat and I fall out of the boat because I'm careless, I'm not going to tell the lifeguard, no, 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 don't rescue me. It's my fault. I fell out of the boat. So, um, so these are just three ways we can work through it with them. But it's work. And as sponsors, we have to be willing to see what are their prejudices? What's their worship of other things? Are they still wanting to control everything? Has there been a calamity in the past that got in the way? Is there a present calamity? Um, or do they feel guilt? And if, oh, the one God could and would if he were sought. And then the person may say, well, I don't know if I'm seeking him well enough. So then the assignment would be, okay, define what well enough would be. Like get the boogeyman out of the closet. You know, if you think it's praying 20 minutes a day, that that's seeking him well enough, well then start doing it. And if the person says, no, I'm, I think that's what, what it means to seek enough, but I'm not willing to do it, then they're not willing to go to any length. And we're not really under much obligation with a person like that. Thank you. Um, our next fellow uh, answering, asking a question says, uh, you shared that it took seven years for you to get abstinent. Um, they're sharing that they have been struggling for years with the same issue. Um, what's the thing that changed for you that made your abstinence sort of stick? Yeah, the first seven years, it was about seven years, I never got two weeks together. Sometimes I couldn't even get to two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, what happened is I was at an OA convention binging. And a woman stood up and she held a big book and she said she hadn't binged in a year. Now, until then, no one had ever talked to me about like really doing the book the way the founders of AA did. And I went up to her and I just said, can you help me? And she said, read this book and then come back and tell me if you're willing to do everything in it. And I did. And I said, yes. And after a few false starts, I just started, I started doing it. I became willing to do whatever it took and I got the correct information, right? If I have diabetes and someone's really earnest and tells me to take penicillin, I'm not gonna get better even though I'm earnest. So I think before then I had never been given correct information. Um, next up, somebody wants to ask about, um, you know, the formats differing in between the big book step and the, like the ONA, the OA 12 and 12. And um, in your, you know, do, how much do you think they differ? Do you, th have you done them both? Have you done a fifth step both ways? Is there one that you think is better than another, you know, any of that? I only use the big book. Um, I supplement when I speak, like the um, AA 12 and 12 has some pearls of wisdom, but I don't, um, to me, this is, this is the manual on how to recover. I mean, it's, it says that um, in one of the forwards, it's, it says since the original forward to this book was written, a wholesale miracle has taken place. And it says um, in the forward to the first edition to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered 
is the main purpose of this book. So I use this book. Great. Uh, next question. Um, a fellow would like to know how you assist a sponsee in identifying their character defects and liabilities specifically. I mean, do you begin to do so prior to the fifth step, maybe in the fourth step? I mean, how does that work? One of the assignments I give my sponsees is I have them do a defect list. To list a defect, look up the definition in the dictionary, write the opposite, and then give an example. And I have a worksheet I put together where I list like the common character defects, but I tell my sponsees, if you don't have one, like um, sloth may be on there. And if someone's like a very neat person and is never slothful, they may say, this doesn't apply to me and that's fine. And then they may have others that I didn't think of that they add. So I can send you over that worksheet as well. Thank you. Next up. Um... <laughs> Do our shortcomings and character defects get uncovered through working the fifth step? And is that a direct relationship? Yes. Next up, how do you help um, sponsees or others in, in other fellows keep moving forward when it feels so you know, icky and sometimes terrible and make you feel worse about yourself actually looking at these character defects and liabilities? that one thing that's important in sponsoring is good information and the other ingredient is love to just make the person feel cared about um i generally i think that they feel cared about and one assignment i, I always require a few things of my sponsees and one of them is that they make three phone calls every day and I give them numbers because I want the calls to be to people who are ahead of them in the steps. So by the time they're on their fourth step, they've already, um, they're already in a network, in a fellowship, and they have peers, they have friends they can call and say, oh, I'm working on my fourth step and I hate myself right now. And they'll have five people tell them, yeah, I, you know, I was like that too, but don't worry, you can get through it. And it's better on the other side. So the friendship and the fellowship that we develop in this program is what gets them through. Um, <clears throat> there are many definitions of abstinence in the program. Um, how entirely abstinent do you subscribe? Oh, I should have said this before, no food plan questions. So, <laughs> so um, you know what, I, to me, that's, I mean, no one used that terminology when I got recovered over 30 years ago. That terminology is fairly recent in the past few years. So I just say uh, that's one of those things I have no opinion on. Okay, fair enough. Um, going back to, you mentioned the worksheet. When, when do you do the worksheet? So the worksheets are um, step four. Um, defects, resentments, fears, and then um, inventory of harms and a sex ideal. There's no, there's no form for a sex ideal though. Janet, I'm gonna ask you one myself, which is, um, how, yeah, and another fellow had, had brought this up as well. How did you feel when, when you completed your own fifth step? I mean, did, did you feel noticeably different? I mean. 
best way I could describe it was it was like um, I got like I was nearsighted and someone gave me a pair of glasses. Trees looked greener. That's just the best way I could describe it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, how important is the fifth step overall? Look at the promises we get after it. Look at those promises. You know, that's only after the fifth step does it say the feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. Thank you. Um, how many new things came to you from your past since you did your fifth step? I've done a few fifth steps. So I think by now I've, uh, I've uncovered pretty much all of it. But when I did my first one, I, I mean, I was pretty thorough. The, the rule I was given and what I tell people is if it happened to you back in kindergarten and you're still angry, it goes on the list. If it happened yesterday and you're not angry anymore, it doesn't go on the list. Thank you. Um, I think we're going to wrap up the questions there. Janet, that was amazing. And I'm going to um, now turn the meeting back over to our chair, which is Joe. Our next monthly step speaker meeting will be held on the 13th of June. We hope to see you there and there will be a flyer in the chat if you would like to download it. Closing. In closing, I would like to thank all of you for your service in coming here today and a special thanks to Janet who led our meeting today. Thank you so much. By following the 12 steps, attending meetings regularly and using the OA tools, we are changing our lives. You will find hope and encouragement in Overeaters Anonymous. To the newcomer, we suggest attending at least six different meetings to learn the many ways OA can help you. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. Please remember our commitment to honor each other's anonymity what you hear here, whom you see here, when you leave here, let it stay here. Let us all reach out by phone or email to newcomers, returning members and each other. Together we get better. To close the meeting, will Dana please unmute and read the promises which will be displayed on the screen. One moment. Um, this is from the big book, page 83, bottom. Uh, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them.